Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wag, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, we're going to talk about the realities of making money with social media. We're also going to talk about spare tires, and do you really need one? We'll have a tale from the road from a contributor about bees, and a product review of the Blue Driver Onboard Diagnostics 2 port, and a quick visit to Great Falls in Virginia. Hello everyone, welcome back for episode 102. This episode marks a little bit of a milestone as we have reached over 100,000 downloads on this channel. And statistically, that makes this something like one of the top 5% of podcasts ever. However, as exciting as that might be, it if you look at a chart of podcasts, you will find that most have something like 30 downloads, and that really skews the numbers. So while 100,000 sounds like a big number, it's not really, and I am okay with that. I am quite happy with the numbers, and I'm very grateful that you all tune in each week or here for the very first time. Now, I've done this podcast for about two years, and I have done certain little things to try to monetize it a little bit. And I thought I would share with you some of the insights I have from that. But keep in mind, this podcast is not about making money. I don't do this podcast to make money. In fact, I think over the years, this podcast has ended up costing me money. It has certainly cost me a lot of time, and I've never made money on my time. And it does cost me something every month to host it. And while I do get a little bit of money from affiliate links and I have had an ad run and a few things like that, it hasn't even come close to paying for the cost of publishing this every month. However, I have learned some things and well, here, I'm just going to share them with you. And if you are someone who is thinking about trying to make money with social media, either podcasting or with YouTube or on Instagram or whatever, hey, here's what I know. And the difference between what I'm about to tell you and what you're likely to find on the internet is... I am not somebody trying to make money with social media, so I don't have anything to sell you. I'm not selling you a course or a class or anything like that. If you like my content, great, keep listening. If you don't, that's okay. There's lots of other content out there for you. When you start a podcast, whether it's on Anchor or Podbean, as is this one, or whatever service you use, you'll be presented with a whole bunch of options for monetizing the podcast. If you want to make money on podcasts, there's a few ways to do it. Uh, one of the ways that you'll see right away is advertising. And there are all these advertising programs like Podcorn and thing like things like that. And when you set up your podcast, you can insert little spaces where ads will go. And if you use a service like Podbean, they will put the ads in there. And you don't really have any control over them. They just kind of happen. So some of you longtime listeners might remember an ad that ran last year that was about, I don't even remember what it was about, to be honest. It was something that didn't have a whole lot to do with van life. And that's, that's the problem with these. Now, that ad ran for quote-unquote a month, and I received $11 for it. And at the time, I thought, well, is it worth compromising my content for $11? And I would argue, no, it isn't. And that didn't lead to any more ads. Uh, now, I can also go out and seek ads myself using Podcorn, like I just mentioned. But the way that works is you have to sell yourself to them. You have to be really dedicated to selling your brand to an advertiser. 
let them know how much money you want, let them know what they'll get out of it, and then you have to negotiate things like a coupon code. So you may have figured out that when somebody is advertising Surfshark or whatever, I mean, if you watch enough YouTube, you'll see this. Everybody's got Surfshark as an advertiser, and they're all offering 83% off. It's funny how they all have exactly the same amount, and they all have a coupon code. Well, basically what that coupon code is, is a way for the advertiser to track how well that provider is doing for them. So Podcast A uses it, Podcast B uses it. If they see that Podcast B has 20 people signing up and Podcast A only has 5 well, maybe they'll offer Podcast B a little bit more, etc., etc. That's how it works. And that's true for a lot of these. Now, another way to do advertising is just to have someone write you a check for you to advertise their product. This also requires you to hustle. Like, for example, I really like the Zoom H2N recorder. Now, I don't think they actually make that anymore, but let's say they did. And let's say that I tried this thing out and really liked it. I could write to Zoom and say, hey, Zoom, I do a podcast. I really like your recorder. How about we do a promo where you send me a brand new recorder and I'll re give it a favorable review on the air. And I'll say, and this podcast is recorded on a Zoom H2N, which it isn't. But, you know, that kind of a thing. Ultimately, though, it's up to you. You really have to market yourself to Zoom, and they might do that. I mean, some of the bigger brands, that's all they do all day long is hustle. They try to sell themselves to these companies to get them to send stuff. Now, once you get to a certain level, you may be contacted by companies like Jackery or Blue Oak or whomever has a product, and they may actually send you a free Jackery and say, hey, could you do a review of this? I have always wanted that to happen to me. <laughs> it has never happened to me. But at some point, if you get enough listeners and enough views, you will get there if you work really, really hard at it. But, and here's the big but, it's my opinion that making money on podcasting is very difficult. If you're not willing to hustle and sell yourself and contact companies all day long and deal with an incredible amount of rejection, it's going to be very difficult to make money on podcasting. Now, I have a friend named Brian. He does a podcast called Skeptoid. It's been around since 2006, and he turned a simple podcast into an entire company. I mean, he has employees now. They're making literal movies. They're doing good stuff, and their quality hasn't gone down at all, and I've forget the last episode number he's done, but it's in the many, many hundreds at this point. Brian did that because he worked his butt off. He works really, really hard at not only producing quality content, which he always does, but also at marketing himself and marketing his brand. And he did something really interesting, which was he took a for-profit company and flipped it to a non-profit company, which has had its pros and cons. It's an interesting space to be. But anyway, there's good news coming from Skeptoid in the future. If you, if you want to see what a podcast can turn into, take a look at Skeptoid.com. That's what a lot of work, a a lot of time and somewhat of being in the right place at the right time can get you. However, if your main interest is making money, I don't think you should focus on podcasting. Podcasting has some advantages over, say, YouTube because, well, it's a lot easier than YouTube. For example, this podcast here, I spend about an hour recording and then maybe an hour and a half to two hours editing every week. So say three hours a week. Now, that doesn't count research time and all the time I spend putting into things, but the nuts and bolts of it is about three hours a week. Eh, that's pretty doable. 
when I was doing this podcast as a YouTube channel show, which I have stopped doing, and I will talk about that more in the future, that took me sometimes 20 hours. It is so much more work to create YouTube content, at least the way I was doing it, than it is to create podcast content. Look, if you just want to get yourself out there, if you just want to have a show and interact with people, podcasting is an awesome way to do that. It doesn't require as much bandwidth. It is super easy to go out in the woods and record a podcast and then take a 10-minute stop at a McDonald's and upload it. That's very simple. But if you want to make money, seriously, we need to talk about YouTube. So I have a YouTube channel. I've talked about it on here, and I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do with it. I've tried a few different things, and by far, my most successful video is the van tour of my NV200, which I did not do as a YouTube video. I created that tour as a Facebook Live I was in North Dakota in a fairly pretty spot, and I thought, oh, why don't I show people my van? So I hit record on Facebook and made that video, and that was it. And I now have, I just checked, it was 188,000 views on that video. Now, that is by far the most popular video I've had. But now I'm going to do something that people don't do. I'm going to break the last taboo and tell you about money. So how much money am I making off that video? Well, first, I had to get over a thousand subscribers. That's the big hurdle. You can't make money on YouTube unless you get over a thousand subscribers. And then you also need a certain number of views, but I, I found that was pretty easy because I had one semi-viral video. From that video, I make about 130 to $140 a month, basically from that one video. And because I'm monetized, my other videos bring in some too. So for the last couple months, I've only been monetized, I think, three months. I've made maybe $150. Now, I have put in a lot of work on some of those videos. There's a video up about Aurora, Missouri that took me maybe 27 or 28 hours of editing. Now, I'm still learning. It takes me time to learn the software and all that. But I just want to give you a picture of what it's like. Now, you don't have to do videos like mine. And here is a truth about YouTubing that um, some of you may not like this, but I, I do think it's true. If you are a young, fairly attractive woman or fairly attractive couple, you can pretty easily make money on YouTube. If you are an older male, it's a little bit more difficult, especially if you're not a full-timer. Uh, there's a there's a lot of factors in here. I mean, your your content has to be engaging. You have to be funny if you can. But what I have learned from watching a lot of videos, and I've I've watched these people start out with 12 views and then get 50,000 views regularly. I've seen how it progresses. You have to be consistent. You have to do a video a week. You have to have quality that is good enough. That doesn't mean it has to be excellent. People have to be able to hear what you say. Arguably, audio content is more important than visual content. And you have to not be boring. You have to accomplish those barriers. Any one of those things will kill your channel if you don't meet them. But if you are a solo female van life person who can be moderately interesting and you produce content like that, I think you're going to be making a couple thousand dollars in a year or two. Seriously, I know that sounds ridiculous, and it's an ever-changing landscape. I mean, YouTube today is not what YouTube a year from now is going to be. They could slash payouts. They could remove monetization at any time. 
you don't know what they're going to do. But based on what I've seen, some very mediocre van life channels, in my opinion, which just basically a young woman talking into a microphone about what I consider to be nothing, they can be very popular. And the men who do that don't have the same success. Now, there's lots of variation. You understand what I'm saying here. There is uh, a bit of privilege for a young, attractive woman on YouTube. Some of the attention they receive may not be attention they want to receive. But as far as YouTube is concerned, it's the number of views that pays. And, well, what I have observed is that, yeah, well, the Somo female YouTubers that I watch have all become successful so long as they produce regular content. And many of the men that I've watched just cease to exist very quickly or plod along. You are going to work with what you have. Uh, oh, also having a dog really helps. If you're absolutely trying to make money, having a dog certainly helps. But ultimately, you're going to work with what you have. I'm working with what I have. And you have to start there. So ignoring all the stuff you can't change... It turns out the real way to make money on YouTube isn't from YouTube views. It's from something like Patreon. Now, many of the channels I follow also have a Patreon. And when you become their patrons, you quickly learn that YouTube is just a vehicle for them. It's Patreon that they really care about. I know that Combi Life, who has produced some of the best content on YouTube, regardless of subject depends on Patreon exclusively. The money they get from YouTube is not enough to support them. Forresty Forest also huge Patreon community, and that's really where he gets his money from. Steve Wallace is interesting. He gets all his money from YouTube, and I don't think he has a Patreon. I think people just give him donations. But he is one of the largest YouTubers in Canada, and he's an exception to what I just said. Steve Wallace is a middle-aged white guy who goes out and sleeps behind billboards or in culverts or whatever. And there's something about this guy's personality that it makes you want to watch him. And he's been hugely successful like that. If you want to be successful on YouTube, you need to watch a lot of YouTube and you need to spend a lot of time and figure out what people are doing. But the money is actually there. And I don't want to be too encouraging. You can never count on that money. Combi Life ran into a situation where they were making a lot of money on YouTube and then it stopped. They don't know why. For some reason, the algorithm stopped favoring them and they went from maybe, I'm making up numbers here, but maybe a couple thousand dollars one month to like 500 the next. And that's a big deal. This is not a salary. This is not steady income. You don't know what's going to happen. But compared to podcasting, yes, YouTube is where it's at if you want to make money. Now, what about other things? Well, there's TikTok and there's Instagram and they have creative funds too. There are ways to make money on those. So I'm told I know nothing about it. So I have no opinion on those. I just don't. I've never really figured out Instagram uh, it, because there's no way to talk with people. I, I know there are Instagram communities, but I don't get it. And it annoys me that I can't use my computer. So that's just me. If Instagram is your thing, you can certainly research how to make money there. The whole point of me telling you all this is not to say, hey, you can make money on social media, go out there and do it. It's exactly the opposite. It's to give you some real world feedback on what it's like to make social media your job. It can be done, but it is a lot of work. It's not guaranteed and you don't know what's gonna happen in the future. 
So consider this an advertisement. In my regular life, in my life before vans, I was a travel agent, and I'm still a travel agent. I own a little tiny travel agency. It's a boutique travel agency. We're not really looking for new business. We have some clients that we service, and I will do big group trips every once in a while. We've been all over the world, had all kinds of adventures. And because of COVID, I haven't been able to do that. So I've decided that, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I've planned a big trip and I'm just going to hope for the best. And it's May 6th through 13th in Alaska. Now this is a cruise. This is a big van on the water. That's how I like to think about it. And we're going to leave from Seattle and we're going to go to Juneau, and maybe go up the tram to the top of Mount Roberts, which is amazing, or go see the Mendenhall Glacier. And we're going to go to Ketchikan, where maybe we'll do a Deadliest Catch tour, where they take you out on a crabber and you actually see how that all works. Or maybe the Lumberjack Show, that's always popular. And then we're going to go to Skagway, where we are, most of us anyway, are going to take the amazing train journey up to the Yukon, which is one of the world's great train rides. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And then we're going to have a quick stop in Victoria, British Columbia, which is one of my favorite places. It is a beautiful little city. And then back to Seattle. We're actually going to do a pre-tour and a post-tour too, but I don't have the details on that. At any rate, that is what's been taking up a lot of my time lately. And so I thought I would tell you guys about it. If you've ever wanted to do a group cruise to Alaska, come join us. We are the College of Curiosity. We are curious people who travel around the world. I currently have a few dozen people going on the ship. I think 44, but that number changes a lot. So if you think that's something you would like to do, cost to do this for an entire week is maybe one to $2,000 per person, double occupancy, depending on a number of factors. Let me know you want to go. We can talk about ways to get you there. We're also going to see glaciers up close on Celebrity Solstice. I'll have a link in the show notes. I used Wix to create the site, so the link is a little bit strange, but it's uh, it's j.mp slash c of c Alaska. And yeah, you better go to the show notes for that link. <laughs> Tech Talk. Let's talk about spare tires. And no, I don't mean spare tires like the one I am currently wearing around my waist. No, I mean spare tires as in you popped a tire and you're going to put on your spare. 50 years ago, it would be insanity to go anywhere without a spare tire because tires popped all the time. But tire technology has come a long way, such to the extent that many of the cars I have purchased didn't even come with spare tires. My smart car didn't come with one, my wife's Scion IQ didn't come with one, and a 2004 Toyota Sienna that I used to have as four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive didn't have one. It had run-flat tires, which are not a great thing, but we'll save that for later. Spare tires are not something you absolutely have to have, and I've seen a lot of van folks worrying over where they're going to put the spare tire. Maybe I can put it on the roof, or maybe I can put it on the bumper, or ooh, it kind of looks snazzy on the hood. Well... What if you don't have one? <laughs> so let's assume that for whatever reason, you don't have a spare tire. Well, it's fine. I mean, most of the time, what you're going to have a flat for is a nail puncture or something like that. You can fix those yourself on the road. No, really, it's not hard. There are tire repair kits that cost about 10 bucks. I've talked about them in the past. You can teach yourself how to use them. And heck, even in Nomadland, the movie, they showed people how to do this. And if you can learn that skill, you can fix maybe 90% of all flats you're going to have. 
That, plus an air compressor, that's all you need to fix almost all your flats. Another thing, and people, I think, don't realize this, if you have uh, a, if you have dualies on your van, like you've got a 3500 series or something, and you've actually got six wheels, well, they're almost always the same size on the front and back. And that means that if you do get a flat, you can use one of those back wheels. I had this happen. I was in an Econoline box truck, and I hit a huge boulder with my right rear dually, and I bent the rim. I mean, that tire, that, there was no way that was going to hold air. And I just took it off, and I limped home on five tires, and it was fine. No, you don't want to do it for very long, but heck, it's better than driving around on a donut, those little spares that come with some cars. So that's totally doable. And yes, those wheels will almost always fit on the front. So instead of worrying about how you're going to mount a spare, spend some time learning how to fix your tires yourself. And for those times when you are in serious trouble, like you've ripped a hole in the sidewall and you can't fix that tire, well, that tire's ruined. So driving it a little ways isn't going to hurt anything. You are risking damaging your rim. And, you know, those are the times when you call roadside assistance. Caveat, everything I just said only applies to people who are staying mostly on the road. If you're doing mostly off-road, deep woods kind of treks where you're going to be 30 miles from help, yeah, you probably want to have at least one spare there, maybe even two as well as the tire repair kit. Tales from the road. Well, folks, it's time for a submission. This is from my friend Richard, who has a snazzy Class B that he tools around the country in. He's a solar power fan, and he recorded this tale for us. A tale from the road. I'm Richard Drum, a.k.a. Richard Drum the Astronomy Bum. It's a long story. I'm the editor of Astronomy Cast, and also of the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. So, in the early 2000s, my wife, our two daughters, and I were returning to Virginia from an eastern Massachusetts visit with my in-laws. Our route took us through Rhode Island and down the Connecticut coast on Interstate 95. Our favorite route had us leave I-95, though, and then drive on I-287, the cross-Westchester Expressway, toward the Tappan Zee Bridge. That's since been replaced by the Governor Mario Cuomo Bridge on the same spot. From there, we'd take the New Jersey Turnpike to Philly, I-95 again to Balmer, Washington, D.C., and home. Anyway, on this particular summer day, traffic was flowing nicely. No issues whatsoever. Until it wasn't. I mean, really wasn't. And now we were in bumper-to-bumper traffic somewhere in White Plains, I think. This was in the days before I had an iPhone and its wondrous Google Maps app. So when we got far enough along, I took an exit off of 287 and pulled to the side and unfolded a paper map. I drove us south through Scarsdale or somewhere and turned and started to head west again. I somehow managed to work my way through some very nice neighborhoods, then under this Brainbrook Parkway and all the way over to I-87. It took a long time. might even have stopped for gas. So we headed north again on 87, back toward 287. Uh, the radio had told me the road was clear from there to the river. But when we got to the huge interchange with I-287, we could see why the traffic was backed up for miles. 
A tractor-trailer load of bees had overturned on the ramp headed eastbound, and the interchange was literally swarming with what must have been a 100,000 very angry honeybees. I could see two guys in beekeeper suits working on the truck's contents. The cops were keeping a long ways back. Their mama didn't raise no fool. I have no idea how the beekeepers got this mess cleaned up. Probably the bees go back to the burst-open hives at night, and the beekeepers close the door behind them. I don't know. I'm sure it took many, many hours, maybe days. Holy shisosomiasis, what a mess. We just drove into the interchange, merged onto 287, and over the Hudson we went. May all your travels uh, be pleasant. Thanks for a great podcast, Jeff. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Richard. There seems to be something about bees going on here lately, and, and well, I'm, I'm a little freaked out by it. Not because I hate bees, but because when I got my ambulance and started taking it apart, I found seven wasp nests living inside, like, the ambulance. Like, I don't know what happened, but there were wasps living in this ambulance. They're all dead. I didn't find any wasps, but it's still a little creepy. Thank you very much for that submission. Product review. Let's talk about the Blue Driver. You know, that sounds like maybe Papa Smurf is going to drive your van for you or something. But no, the Blue Driver is this little device that plugs into your OBD2 port. That is your Onboard Diagnostics 2 port. That little place that the emissions people will check or whatever. Or maybe where you already have a scanner, like I've talked about a dozen times. Well, that's what this thing is. The Blue Driver is a scanner, but it's a Bluetooth scanner. You plug it in and it connects to your phone via Bluetooth and you can get all your readings that way. The nice thing that this has is a live display. So if you're concerned about something, like let's say your van's really loaded or you're towing a trailer and you're going to go over the Rockies in the summer and you're worried about the engine temperature and you have a Sprinter, which for some reason does not have a temperature gauge, still can't get over that. You could have this be your temperature gauge. You can totally just have your phone up on your dashboard and it will show you your temperature and your transmission temperature, and the outside air temperature, and basically whatever the computer in your vehicle can tell you, this little OBD2 Bluetooth driver will have on your phone. And I find that useful. Can you clear codes with it? Yes, you can. I don't think its code clearing is as good as a dedicated, more expensive scanner. But for something simple, like your gas cap is loose, that's a very common, simple check engine light, yeah, you can reset that with this, no problem. It also, because it's on your phone, has links to everything. So, example, you get an error code P405. I made that up. I don't know what it is. But let's say that comes up. Well, it will tell you that, and then you can tap on it, and it'll instantly Google it for you, and maybe you'll figure out what's going on. So I, I think this thing is pretty cool. Now, I am going to say that I think it could do more. I'm hoping that there will be software updates that will make this thing better. One thing that would be huge is if they could incorporate it into CarPlay. Many of us are using CarPlay now or Android Auto, Android's version of CarPlay or vice versa. And just it would be just on your big screen, maybe even just as an icon. I mean... Wow, that would be awesome, but for some reason, and it's probably Apple's fault, it is not 
available to do that. And also the, they could probably hire a better UI designer because the gauges are a little small and you kind of have to look at them carefully and that's not something you want to have to do while you're driving. But overall, this competes with things like the scan gauge 2 and other dedicated screens that you have to mount. This just puts everything on your phone and then you just have this little module that plugs in and is forgotten and actually that's pretty nice. They cost about a hundred bucks. They're not super cheap and there are other versions of this, but this is the one I bought. I'll have a link in the show notes. You can read the reviews on there. I think it's a pretty solid device for folks driving sprinters or other vehicles that don't have some of the gauges you really need to have. A place to visit. So Washington, D.C. is a great place to visit. There's tons to do there. But, you know, it's not the most nature-y kind of a place, you know? I mean, it's it's a big city. It's a big metropolis. And I lived there for 10 years in, in Manassas and Leesburg and McLean and then in rural Loudoun County. And while once you get out into rural Loudoun County, you're living in the trees and stuff, there aren't any, like, national parks nearby or anything like that, at least not within an hour or two, except for one place, and that is Great Falls. It's just outside of D.C., just east of McLean, Virginia, if you're looking at a map. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's this massive waterfall. And, I mean, not quite Niagara, but yeah, that kind of a waterfall. Not, you couldn't throw a rock across it. You know, it's a really big waterfall. And it's right outside D.C. And it has a really interesting history because it was a barrier on the Potomac River where they could get ships from the ocean up the Potomac up to this point and they couldn't get past the falls. So George Washington built a canal around it and the remnants of that are still there. And you're probably thinking of, like, the canal that's, you know, right in D.C. by the Key Bridge. That canal? No. No, not, not a flat canal with a nice path next to it. This was a series of locks that basically went up a mountain, a small mountain, a big hill, but up. And you can see the remnants of it, and it's just mind-boggling that somebody thought they could build locks that would get over these falls. And the other amazing thing about this place is that, well, it floods. And there are signs that show the maximum flood levels. And so on a normal day, you can go up to the edge and look over the falls. And it's a few hundred feet down to the river. But next to you, there's a telephone pole. And 20 feet up the top of the telephone pole, there's a sign that says maximum flood height. This thing really, really floods. There are some walking trails there. I used to take my kids here fairly often when they were very little. So it's, it, you know, I would hold on to them, <laughs> but they were usually just strapped in their strollers. But it's just a nice place that if you're in the DC area and you want to get out and see some nature-y kind of stuff, stuff that's kind of grand, well, Great Falls will scratch that itch. I'll have a link in the show notes, but it's not that hard to find if you just ask somebody how to get to Great Falls. They can tell you. Resource recommendation. Now, this site that I found is it's a news source. I'm, I'm constantly looking for someone who's just going to do van life news. And while I do segments here on the podcast, honestly, they're usually just filler unless something big happens. And no one's doing it full time. And I thought, oh, I could do a YouTube channel of Van Life News. or I've got enough projects right now. I did find something close. It's called Nomadic News. And it's for people who live in RVs. But they're starting to cross over into van life. And while RV life and van life are different in some ways, they're also similar in some ways. And for those of us in vans, there is stuff to learn. 
from following uh, Nomadic News. It's a very professional site. It, it's really nice looking. Uh, they have ads at the bottom, but you know most sites do. And you know some of the topics that they have on their site today are who is living the van life, and they have an interview with Chad, a quite famous van lifer. And number two, five reasons to avoid RVing on Social Security. Well, that would also apply to van life. The fact that it's an RV in this case is just means a vehicle. Have $15,000? Here are the travel trailers you can buy. You know, okay, so you can kind of figure out what the price of things are. We don't talk about trailers very much, but I consider them part of van life, so fine. What it's really like spending the holidays in an RV or a van. Why China bomb tires may ruin your RV vacation. All right, well, this, this issue is mostly related to RVs. Um, basically, a lot of RVs come with really inexpensive Chinese tires that have a habit of exploding, and that's why they're called China Bombs. A lot of inexpensive RVs, when you buy them new, the recommendation is you replace the tires immediately because if you've got a large RV and the tire explodes, it can actually destroy your rig. So that's what's going on there. But anyway, the point is that this site has a lot of content that can actually be useful for people in van life. And it's just nice to see someone keeping track of things. Here's some other examples. Uh, Nomads get a bad rap by most America. That's an article about how people are just suspicious of people living on the road. I've talked about that a lot. 10 worst states for camping. That absolutely applies to us. And it's funny, if you look over the history of this channel, it gets more and more and more van-oriented. So hey, if you want to subscribe to a website or just watch a website that has news that might be interesting to you, because you are a van person, check out nomadicnews.com. And of course, I'll have a link in the show notes, though I wonder if anyone ever actually looks at the show notes. If you're somebody who looks at the show notes, please let me know, because I would like to know that. Okay, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 102. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And if you're trying to find me out there, well, you can get a hold of me via email at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Until next time, remember this quote, actually a bit of lyrics from Midnight Oil. Shifting sands and broken plans lead me on to my homeland.